Hey guys, my name is Caleb Witten, and I'm the young adult pastor for B2Co Young Adults. We exist to see young people from ages 18 to 30 come to know Jesus and to know him deeply. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope that you enjoy this message and are able to go deeper in your relationship with Jesus because of it. Amen. All right, guys. Well, smaller crowd tonight, but that's all right. I kind of expected that with tonight being Valentine's Day. Uh, so happy Valentine's Day to you. Uh, I'll say it publicly uh, to, to my Valentine, my bride. I love you, and I'm, I'm thankful for, for doing ministry and life with you. I'm excited uh, for this next season, but um, I know we're all grateful for you, and I want you all to know that, that um, only a fraction, only a margin of what we do here with BDCO Young Adults would, be, uh, would happen if, if she was not a part of it. So thank you, Kaylee. I love you. Um, so tonight we are continuing on in our Romans series. So this is week three of our Romans series. We're going to begin chapter two here tonight. Romans chapter two, verses one through 16. And I've titled this message, It's an Even Playing Field. Have you ever felt judged by somebody? I'm sure most of us have. Maybe you have even felt wrongly judged by somebody. We felt it, and, and chances are you haven't enjoyed it. Judgment brings this feeling within us that, that makes us feel exposed, makes us feel vilified, misunderstood, maybe even small. And based on our actions, on, being, on why we're being judged, we might even deserve it. And other times, we don't deserve it. But either way, the way that we feel places the one who's judging us over us in some way. It, it gives them some type of higher ground over us. Maybe you have been one to judge others. Maybe you have judged based on the way they act or talk or dress or live or, or, or whatever. There's several things that we could fill in that blank with. You find it your duty, whether you tell the person or not, that that whatever they are doing in that moment that you feel like is wrong, you definitely want to call attention to it. So in this moment, whether you are the judged or the judge, both of these positions have implications uh, that, that wrong has been done to someone, either way. And the passage that we're looking at tonight in Romans chapter 2 is probably more often taken out of context than it is Put in the correct context. We all know those people that are in our lives that, that kind of just live the way that they want to live, however they want to live. Uh, and then whenever we call, whenever you go and call them out on the life that they're living, they'll just throw Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 right back at you, which says, uh, do not judge or you too will be judged. And they use this verse as a scapegoat to just kind of live as they please. And unfortunately, this is a gross misinterpretation of what Jesus means by this verse. And similarly, as we continue in the book of Romans, we find a passage that shares a very similar message. It, it even seems like uh, potentially Romans chapter 2, 1 through 16 was, was Paul teaching something similar to the Sermon on the Mount. If you're unfamiliar with the Sermon on the Mount, what that is, it's Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. It's the longest 
uh, the longest sermon of Jesus's that we have. You learn a lot about his, his style of teaching. You learn a lot about uh, his theology, and you learn a lot about his love. So I would encourage you to go read that. But, but in chapter 7, right there at the beginning, we see that he starts beginning to talk about judging others. And if you haven't uh, guessed yet, that's what we're talking about tonight, is judgment, judging others. So, uh, read with me Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, every one of you who judges is without excuse. For when you judge another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the same thing. We know that God's judgment on those who do such things is based on the truth. Do you really think any one of you who judges those based on who do such things, yet you do the same, that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment is revealed. He will repay each one according to his works. Eternal life to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality. Maybe your version says purity there. But wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth while obeying unrighteousness. There will be affliction and distress for every human being who does evil, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does what is good, first to the Jew and also to the Greek, for there is no favoritism with God. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for the opportunity we have to open up the book of Romans, and I pray that tonight as we uh, uncover what this word is, is saying, what you, what you mean in this passage of scripture, God, that we would be humbled by it. Lord, that you would open up our hearts to, to see what, what you would have to say tonight, and ultimately I pray that you would hide me behind the cross. God, that, that you would use me as your vessel to, to speak, to proclaim your truth, and Lord, that that's what this would be. Lord, use my words, and I pray that if any of my own escape out of my mouth, they'd fall dead to the floor. Lord, I pray that this is simply a declaration of what you have to say to your people. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Christ's name, amen. So Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. The first truth that I want to talk about when, whenever it comes to judging others is this. Leave the judging for the Lord. Leave the judging for the Lord. And one of the most important distinctions that we will make here tonight is the difference between the biblical definition of judgment and maybe how we in English would, would interpret the definition or that word judgment. Freddie, would you mind taking my mic down just a little bit? So you'll see on the, the iPad, uh, Caleb, just pull it down just a little bit. I think it was a little bit higher. That'd be great. Thank you. Um, okay, so... Uh, leave the judgment for the Lord. There's a certain type of judgment that, that is different than what we're going to discuss here. So there's a type of judgment that we'll see and we'll discuss that is okay, that, that we are actually called to do. 
by other scriptures. And, and there's, a, there's an author, a commentator named Robert Mounts, and he's actually the one that wrote the commentary on Romans that I used to prepare these messages. And he defines this first type of judgment as a sane appraisal of character. So, in practice, what this type of judgment would look like, being a brother in Christ that you know, struggling with the sin of drunkenness, and then coming to the, the appraisal of their character based on a, a certain amount of time that you've observed this behavior, that this brother or sister in Christ struggles with the sin of drunkenness because they're always drunk. That's not sinful. That's not condemning. That is appraising someone's character. That is the biblical judgment that we are called to come to with brothers and sisters in Christ and reaching out to them correction, love, peace, surrounding them with that. And then we'll see another type of judgment that, that this passage is speaking to. And this type of judgment is, is one that Mounts would describe as a hypocritical or self-righteous condemnation of another person. This is saying that there's no way that that person is saved because they're always drunk. Or maybe even that person's going to hell because they're always drunk. And the error in this is, is seeing a person in sin, and that leads you to the assumption that they are condemned to hell, when in reality, if they were to assess the sin in your life, they could come to the same assessment, no matter what the sin is. The error is condemnation. So we see that judgment, whenever we're praising the character of someone, and we have a heart towards towards reconciliation with the Lord and confession of their sin or repentance ultimately, that, that, that is the goal behind judgment. But oftentimes our judgment leads towards a condemnation of they're too far gone or they're, they're unreachable or whatever. And we'll get more into that tonight. Again, uh, looking back at Matthew chapter 7, if you're unfamiliar with this passage, he starts out by saying, uh, do not judge unless you want to be judged. Or, and, and then he moves on to use this analogy that I'm sure many of you are familiar with, where he, he says, uh, don't address the, the splinter in someone else's eye before addressing the log in your own. And again, this, this analogy is effective because it's pointing out like, hey, before you condemn someone else of their sin, address your own first. And this judgment that we see here in Romans chapter 2 that is being addressed is this hypocritical, this selfish type of judgment. And verse 1 actually points out that this false condemnation of others actually condemns the one judging. Verse 3 and 4, if you move on into those verses, Paul uses language that is intended to convict and correct the habits of the Jews there in the church of Rome. Read those with me. Verses 3 and 4. It says, Do you really think any one of you who judges those such things yet do the same that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you despise the riches of His kindness, restraint, and patience? Not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. You see, like we've talked about the past two weeks, the Jews there at the church 
of Rome, they had this natural disposition, almost a, a certain amount of, of racism against the Greeks or the Gentiles, where they, they would place themselves as, as better or above or uh, morally better, at least, than the Greeks. And we see that they have what I would call a holy arrogance about their, their spirituality or their favor with God. And Paul addresses this arrogance by knocking them off of that high ground, right? That's how we see, that's the language we see used in verses 3 and 4 where he says, do you really think that you're going to escape God's judgment by judging those who, who, who you see doing the same things that you do? And oftentimes, I think our hearts need to be evaluated for this behavior as well. Particularly in, in a community, in an area that might be more churched than other areas, we can, we can easily, as, as the church, gather together and condemn those which we know are not living lives that honor Jesus. And in that condemnation, we reveal our own sin. How often do you spit holy arrogance towards those that you would consider beyond repair? And the reason why I use this term, holy arrogance, is because it's an oxy oxymoron. Arrogance is in no means holy. And neither is this type of condemning judgment of others. Yet whenever we see people that are living in sin, we grow this, this anger that leads to the point where, where we feel like we have to call them out. I don't know if y'all ever experienced, uh, maybe y'all did this whenever you were kids. I know me and my brother and my friends did this, where you would just be like messing around with your friends, or maybe you were legit mad at your friends. This is like a fourth grade type thing, so get back there with me in like fourth grade. And you're, you're messing around with your friends, you get mad at each other, and you just point at each other and you're like, you're stupid. And then whenever someone calls you stupid, you're like, well, you point one finger at me, but you have three pointing back at you. Did y'all ever do that? Did y'all ever use that analogy? Like in, in a silly way, in a, a loose analogy, I think this is sort of what Paul is saying here. He's saying, hey, you cast that stone, you point that finger, but you've got three pointed back at you. Like you're just as guilty as that person is. And so this is kind of the, the idea that Paul is getting at here. It, it's a reality that I think it's important for all of us believers to realize. And I think it, it, it'll help us with this, this awkward anger that we feel towards lost people's sin. And we're looking, again, thinking in the eyes of, of the, the Jewish people there in Rome, assessing the Greeks, the Gentiles, the, the lost, of, of, or as what they would call them. And I want you to take that and apply it to today, where we're looking at us as the church and looking at the world, the secularized culture around us, the, the, the terrible things that we all see happening in the world. And we get so angry, and there's, there's a tinge of righteousness in it, but it can get unrighteous so quickly. And understand that, that hear this truth tonight, lost people will sin. This is a reality. All people sin, but lost people sin without conviction, right? Like we, we get so offended and we get so angry whenever we see the world living like the world, but that's their thing. They're the world. They live 
this way. They don't have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So how should we expect these people that do not have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, how can we expect them to live as if they do? Right? So this means that that they will not walk in a way where they seek to honor God. They won't. They don't have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 4. How does God respond to the sin of the lost? With kindness, with restraint, and with patience. And what was the purpose of him responding in that way at the end of verse 4? Repentance. And again, I know that this, this word repentance has been a big discussion in our ministry within the past few months. And, and that word, just a reminder, it's to change one's mind. It's to go from unbelief to belief. And our goal uh, with, with non-believers, with the lost, with the world, is to take, take these, the lost, show them the beauty of Christ, and not just change their mind on the existence of God, but ultimately change their mind on the authority of God. That they might fall under the authority of God and, and, and seek to sin no more, right? Like there's tons of people that believe there is a God, but there's few that bow and that live according to the authority of God. Read with me verses 5 through 11. Because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath. When God's righteous judgment is revealed, he will repay each one according to his works. Eternal life to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, or purity. I like the word purity there better because it makes more sense in, a, in our common English brain. But wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth while obeying unrighteousness. There will be affliction and distress for every human being who does evil, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone, for everyone who does what is good, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For there is no favoritism with God. And the two points tonight that that we're going to discuss are uh, connected, but not necessarily related. So they're, they're, it's not like they work together, but there are two ideas that, that this, te- this passage of Scripture teaches. The first one, again, leave the judgment for the Lord. Number two, be persistent in doing good. And this passage of Scripture, uh, it, it would have meant something, verses 5 through 11 particularly, would have meant something very different to the Jewish audience reading this than it does for us here tonight. And Paul uses this passage of Scripture, verses 5 through 11, to essentially, uh, in in maybe a bit of a a, a loose interpretation of a kind of a you-reap-what-you-sow opportunity to teach. He's saying that if you sow glory, honor, and purity, you will reap eternal life. If you sow selfishness and disobedience, you reap wrath and anger. And I want to be careful here, and I want to be intentional about saying that that this passage is not teaching some works-based salvation. Notice that that whenever Paul says this, he's not saying be persistent in doing good and seek a good Bible study, pray a few times a day, and drop some money in the tithing box. Those things are great, and they 
help the overall health of the church. However, there are plenty of people that sit in our seats week after week that have hearts that are not seeking glory, honor, and purity. There are plenty of people that spend time in the Word of God every day and try to follow the law of God to a T that are far from God because their hearts are not fixed on the right things. There are people all over all the churches that pay for the lights to stay on whose hearts are not fixed on the right things. Paul is not saying here, continue in doing good, be persistent in doing good, and keep the lights on. Read your Bible. Pray. He's saying, be persistent in doing good by seeking to glorify God, to honor God, and to have a pure heart. Because here's the reality. The number one example of this type of behavior is the Jews that Paul is speaking of, right? Like we see literally all over Roman history how the Jews, the Pharisees, acted. How does Paul refer to their behaviors, even their hearts, in verse 5? Hardened and unrepentant. So, these people that were so fixed on doing good by means of, of actually physically doing something seemingly have gotten, wrong, gotten it wrong because doing good is not about what your mouth says, where your feet go, and what your hands touch. Doing good is about who your heart is fixed on. Whenever your heart is fixed on Jesus, your mouth, feet, and your hands will seek glory, honor, and purity. I'm going to say that again because that's kind of the, the big point of the night. Whenever your heart is fixed on Jesus, your mouth, feet, and hands will seek glory, honor, and purity. Paul moves on towards the end of this passage to speak about who this eternal life is available for. Again, looking at the, the Jewish culture of that, that moment, and you'll see several times throughout a lot of different scriptures, this phrase, to the Jews first and also to the Greeks. Because you've got to think about the audiences that these people are writing to, the, these Jewish, pre predominantly Jewish cultures that, that these prophets are trying to get into their skin. That like, hey, the Greeks have an opportunity to be saved as well. The Gentiles have availability for salvation. And that's what he says here, and that's why he says it twice. He repeats himself, because he's trying to really drive in the point that, that everybody is available to respond to the truth of the gospel. Everybody is available to seek to do good, to, to seek to glorify God, to seek to honor God, and to seek to have a pure heart. In verse 11, he just straight up calls him out, and he goes, hey, God doesn't show favoritism. He doesn't have favorites. It's available for everyone. Eternal life is available for everyone. This is him saying, connecting it all the way around to the title of the message, that it's a level playing field for all people. Anybody who does what is good can inherit this eternal life. And even today, we create these categories of unreachable, just like the Jews did. 
Sometimes even unknowingly, we'll, we'll just write people off because they're too far gone. Right? We all do that based off of how certain people in our lives, uh, they, we believe that they're incapable of, of receiving the gospel because of how distant or how different their life is from the gospel. But praise God that that's not true. And as you assess their situation, you think that it would take an act of God for that person to come to faith in Christ. And you would be exactly right. Because the only way that any of us come to salvation is an act of God. Imagine if the only people that came to know Christ were those that were easy to reach, were easy to get to, or that were not headstrong in what they believed, right? Like we think about even, even the man writing this book, Paul. Like think about his story and how many people, how many Christians before he came to know Christ was like, no way that dude will ever be saved. And how many times do we say that as well? How many times, for some of us in this room, that was said about us. No way that dude's coming to Christ. Right? Like it, it is... It's a slap in the face to God, really, because it's denying the power that he has. Whenever we say that that person is too far gone, nobody is out of reach for the unchanging, all-powerful, everlasting salvation that comes through belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nobody is out of reach for that. And our goal as believers should be to be persistent, to show them in the persistence of us doing good as we seek to glorify God, to honor God, and to have a pure heart. We show the lost kindness. We show the lost patience. We show the lost restraint in hopes that God's kindness that He, he uses us to show would lead them to repentance. It's a level playing field. So it's a bit of a shorter message, and we're going to end the service a little bit different tonight. We're not going to do a song or, or, or anything like that, but this is how we're going to respond tonight. I want you to think right now of somebody in your life who you have just written off as unreachable. There's no way that dude's coming to Christ or that girl's coming to Christ. I'm going to ask it another way. Who have you condemned to hell because you think there's no way they would respond to the gospel? And so what's your answer to that? Just don't share it with them. Right? <laughs> How pathetic is that? We're going to take a few minutes and we're just going to pray for those people. Number one, there should be some type of confession on your end for not believing that, that God is strong enough, that God is powerful enough, or that the gospel can reach far enough <laughs> to save that person. Maybe you've seen this video circulating. There's obviously a lot of buzz after that He Gets This commercial that, that played at the Super Bowl. And in response to that, some other person, I saw it on Twitter last night, some other person made this video, uh, He Saves Us. Have y'all seen this video? Where it, it's, it's going through a list of people like former witch, former lesbian activist, former abortionist, former uh, like Dawkins man, and it goes through all these lists of people who, if you were to show us that list of people before they were saved, we'd be like, yeah, no way. 
No way. And it's all these people that are saved, that are followers of Jesus now. And yes, it's, it's in the middle of this whole social media controversy over that commercial. And I, I don't really care how you feel about the commercial, but I, I think that that video did a really good job at driving this point home. And I saw it last night, and I was like, wow, thank you, Lord. Like, it was cool to kind of get this direct application after reading this passage of Scripture. Uh, And in this moment, I want you to to think about those people that you know, whether it be a professor that you have, whether it be a co-worker that you have, a family member that you have, uh, or even just a friend that you have, that you would say is too far gone, and pray for them. Number two, I want you to confess the sin of judgment that you have committed. And don't do it again. (laughs) And then, it comes with the action. So it's one thing for us to sit in this room, recognize that we've done wrong, pray for the person to be saved, but it's another thing to actually act on it and go share the gospel with those people. Have the awkward conversation. The worst that's going to happen is you have an awkward conversation or they get angry. But you know what the best thing that could happen? They could be in heaven for eternity because of it. Right? Like we, we, get, so, we get so worked up in our, our brains about sharing the gospel with people because we think they're going to just be harsh towards it. And sometimes they might be. But, again, The alternative is eternity in hell. And everyone has the availability to respond to the gospel. So let's pray. Jesus, I want to thank you for the beauty of your gospel. For the perfection of your gospel. The depth of your gospel and how far it reach. Jesus, I pray if there's somebody in this room right now that needs to respond to your gospel, maybe for the very first time, that you would just convict their hearts of the truth that you came to this earth to die uh, the death on a cross for our sin. Lord, and, and thankfully and graciously you offer us eternal life through your death on the cross. And God, I'm grateful that you rose from the grave. We're conquering over death and the grave, claiming the authority over it. And Lord, I'm hopeful of the promise of your return. Jesus, tonight I want to pray over those names that are in our hearts and on our minds. Those that, that are far from you that we've considered unreachable. Lord, convict our hearts of of how we've belittled your power. Lord, embolden our hearts to share the gospel with them. Lord, I pray that we would see salvation come out of these conversations that we're going to have. Jesus, I want to thank you For midweek, I want to thank you for Bidico Young Adults and the family, the community that that this is for all of us. I pray that we wouldn't take that lightly and we would be grateful for it. 
but Lord, that this community wouldn't be just some, something that meets once a week. God, that we would do life together outside of this, and ultimately, God, that we would be just a force, a reckoning with your gospel in this world. Lord, forgive us for where we cast judgment where we shouldn't. Jesus, we, we love you and we praise you. And it's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.